So there's a whole complex interaction there between human exploitation of the marine environment, I guess, and the potential positive and maybe, well, more likely negative, maybe positive impacts on uh, on marine mammals and other wildlife. My name is Laura Palmer. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Bristol in the UK. And I guess I would call myself a cetacean ecologist very broadly, but my interests mostly are in communication. Happy Thursday. Welcome back to Below the Tide. This is episode 34, and we are kind of picking up right where we left off last week with Laura. We're going to chat about her fieldwork, some of her projects with dolphins and porpoises. If you haven't listened to episode 33, you can head on back there right now if you want. You can get a bit of an intro to dolphins and Laura's work. If this is your first time listening to Below the Tide, welcome. The goal is to bring you marine science directly from the scientist. The goal is to make marine science accessible and easy to understand. Every episode has resources like photos and videos that you can find on Instagram and Twitter at Below the Tide Pod. And now you can actually find them on the website at BelowTheTide.com. And if you've been here for a while, you know the drill. Grab a coffee and enjoy. You mentioned some of your work with tidal turbines. Yes. And so maybe we can jump into that. I personally don't have never seen a tidal turbine. So yes. I'll let you take and that one actually, away. That's kind of the point. And okay. I'll, I'll talk more about them now. But tidal turbines are a form of renewable energy. And a lot of the other forms of renewable energy that we might be more familiar with are things like solar panels or wind turbines. And there's a little bit sometimes an attitude of um, not on my doorstep you know some people find them unsightly and you know each has their own um, disadvantages because they're highly reliant on the weather for example it's not so predictable and so what tidal turbines are are essentially underwater wind turbines they use the water currents to drive propellers to drive a turbine to generate electricity and so we don't see them albeit there's not many uh, deployed in the world yet, but they are underwater and they're deployed in coastal areas, which means that actually they overlap with the habitat of a lot of seals, dolphins, porpoises, that kind of thing. And so the concern there is that there could potentially be fatal collisions between these animals and the turbine blades. Um, and it was just kind of a huge grey area when we started. I was just not sure if that was a realistic concern. And if it was, how common could this be? And what effect could that ultimately have on populations? So what I really loved about this project that I undertook with colleagues at the University of St Andrews Sea Mammal Research Unit was that it was a huge and really effective collaboration between um, us as researchers, industry, and also the regulator, which was in effect Scottish government at the time. And it was really nice to kind of work at that interface of the policy um, and get to see the technical side and work with the turbine company as well. But what we did, or our role as biologists, um, we instrumented the base of the turbine with 12 hydrophones. So these are underwater microphones that we use to record sound, basically underwater. And this system was capable of detecting porpoises or dolphins, but I'll probably mostly talk about porpoises here as that's what we detected most of. It can detect porpoises, but also we can track them. So 
porpoises just use echolocation clicks. They don't whistle like dolphins. When they produce an echolocation click, that sound arrives at fractions of a second uh, different times on each hydrophone. And we can use those time differences to triangulate the position of the animal. So what we wanted to do is look at, firstly, are we detecting porpoises near the turbine? And secondly, is there any evidence of a behavioural response to the turbine when it's operating? And what we found was that porpoise presence around the turbine was actually reduced by up to 78% when the turbine was operating. So, of course, this is a good thing from a collision risk perspective because it means there's less likely to be incidents between porpoises and blades. Um, but another thing that we should be aware of in future research we'll need to explore a bit more is okay, so porpoises were potentially displaced from this small area, at least for a bit of time. Um, and ultimately, if we scale this up and we have more and more turbines deployed, how could this affect these populations? And something else we found through the tracking is actually there was no evidences, no evidence of porpoises swimming through the area that the blades kind of sweep um, when it was operating, and very few tracks when it wasn't operating turbine that day. Um, and so mostly the tracks showed that porpoises were going around the base of the turbine. And we hypothesized that could actually be because there was some kind of reef effect. So it's quite a big metal structure. Uh, to give a sense of scale, the blades themselves, the diameter is 18 meters. So that's kind of like two London buses. <laughs> and the area... Oh my goodness. They're huge. And the area that this was... Okay, I was thinking like, okay, it's a dining room table, you know, like... It's like just like this thing that sits in the water. Yes, and I should say, you know, because this is an industry that's very new, um, there's all kinds of new designs coming out. So I'm speaking specifically about the turbine where I was doing the research. But yeah, 18 meter diameter blades and the water depth where it's deployed is only about 35 meters. So the blades take up approximately half of the water column there. All of that to say that the base of the structure also has to be pretty substantial. And um, we think probably what was happening is that there was a lot of growth on the structure. So kind of like marine plants taking over and growing and in turn that attracting fish, which actually kind of meant that that might be a beneficial foraging place for harbour porpoises. And that's all kind of theory. We haven't proved that but it was a potential reason why we were seeing a lot of porpoises swimming low in the, by the turbine. And so that's that's just wild that you'd have things like an entire ecosystem kind of growing at the bottom. And would that, I guess, potentially create an effect where, you know, you're attracting these porpoises to that area? It could. Ultimately, we still found that when the turbine was rotating, there was reduced porpoise presence. Um, and that's likely because there's noise associated with the turbine operating. So um, the likelihood that a porpoise isn't aware of there being a structure is incredibly low. There could be an effect of attraction, but that's not something that we could really tell from the data that we had. I think it's super interesting. There's actually like a whole research project still at the University of Andrews that is investigating the potential effects of these 
structures in the environment on uh, marine wildlife. So not just talking about tidal turbines, but also like oil and gas platforms and wind turbine bases, offshore wind turbine bases. There's, uh, yeah, there's some evidence that these are acting as artificial reefs or potentially could be safe havens for animals because they also a lot of the time happen to be exclusion zones for boats. <laughs> so there's a whole complex interaction there between uh, human exploitation of the marine environment, I guess, and the potential positive and maybe, well, more likely negative, maybe positive impacts on uh, on marine mammals and other wildlife. Wow, that's so interesting. And what does or what did your field work look like when you were doing that project? And what does your field work kind of look like now? Yeah. So actually, that project was largely desk based. And there's quite a lot of, um, well, I guess there's a lot of <laughs> the stereotype of marine biologists is that it's like sitting on a yacht in the Caribbean, you know, counting dolphins and Actually, 90% of my year is still sat at a desk processing data and it's still a great and very rewarding part of the job. But yeah, that the tidal turbine work in particular was more desk-based because once the um, hydrophones were deployed, the data was actually being streamed back to shore to a computer in the turbine substation and it would record whole vast amounts of data onto hard drives that I would then um, get back at my desk at the University of St Andrews and process and you can kind of imagine when we're talking about acoustic data these hydrophones are capable of recording sort of year-round 24 hours a day and so that's a lot more data than I could ever process even if I was to work every day <laughs> round the clock for the rest of my life I wouldn't get through all of the data um, and so we use a lot of computer programs and algorithms to help us process that and so yeah minimal amounts of field work and a lot of screen time for the tidal turbine work um, my work now has more field work um, so I'll talk mostly about Cardigan Bay because that's where most of my fieldwork has been for my PhD so far. Although I do get to go to Shark Bay in Australia this summer, which I'm really looking forward to. But field days are amazing. They're long days. You pretty much get up um, as soon as it's light <laughs> and get out to make the most of the day. It's carrying a lot of kit when you're doing acoustic stuff. <laughs> um, but we'll go out in Cardigan Bay. I work with a charity called Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre and an ecotourism company who take us out on their vessels to do our surveys. They're called Dolphin Survey Boat Trips. And so we'll head out and every time we're doing what we call a survey, so we're doing visual surveys for dolphins and simultaneously we have hydrophones deployed to record them when we see groups of dolphins and we have four hydrophones hanging off the boat. And we basically explore the area, trying to get a good coverage of some protected areas that are within the wider Cardigan Bay area and also areas outside of those um, conservation areas to, to understand kind of where dolphins are using different areas and which dolphins are where. And so we're using photo ID, which is a method where you photograph the dorsal fin, so the fin on the back of the dolphin that you see when they surface. And the unique markings on those fins allow us to identify individuals. 
Um, and then we have usually four hydrophones deployed. Um, a bit like I was saying earlier with the um, porpoise localization, when a dolphin whistles, that sound will arrive at a different time on each of our hydrophones. So we can triangulate which dolphin is whistling. And ultimately our aim is to both capture the fin and also to um, record the signature whistle, that identity call that I was saying is like a name of the dolphin. Because each method, acoustics and visual surveys have different benefits and slight downfalls. And so it's pretty busy when we're out in the field and we're collecting all of that data as well as kind of the more foundational data, such as where we are, the behavior of the animals, things like that. And as I said, it's a long day. So we pretty much aim to be out whilst there's daylight and fieldwork in the UK. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, it's not always sunny. It could be pretty cold and rough, but you know, the highs kind of outweigh all of the uh, the slight downsides when there's bad weather and stuff as soon as you encounter a big group of dolphins and it's all systems go and it's a whole team of us and everybody has their role and the survey eventually will, will end when it gets dark and then usually I check the data the acoustic recordings that we've collected that night mostly just because I'm impatient and I want to see what we got that's kind of a real highlight normally as well is that you're in the field and you're seeing what's happening at the surface and you might see a group that's going crazy and they're socializing and they're super active. And then you get home and you look at the recording and it's just bananas. There can be so many whistles all overlapping each other and just total chaos. Um, but it's a really rewarding feeling, you know, when you get back and you can kind of connect with what you were seeing at the surface with kind of what was going on underwater as well. How many people are usually on your crew going out to do surveys yeah so I guess as a minimum it would normally be four of us um my colleague Dr Sarah Perry at the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre focuses mostly on the photo ID and I focus on the acoustics and then we have the skipper and at the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre they also have a team of volunteers through the summer as well so that's also what I did uh, back in 2015 when I was gaining experience, I was there as a volunteer um, collecting the survey data. And usually there's a good few volunteers on board and, you know, they're getting experience with everything that we're doing. And we rely on them for the, collecting all the data during these busy encounters. Um, it's just a big team effort, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're looking for dolphins is there an area that you're typically looking in where you're like yeah they're going to be hanging out here around this time of day or do you spend quite a bit of time searching as wild animals the dolphins are always pretty unpredictable but in cardigan bay there are some real hot spots where you more or less uh i mean i certainly wouldn't put much money on it but you would bet that you might see dolphins and in fact the um the little town that we're based out of, you can quite often see um, dolphins just from the harbour wall there. So you don't even necessarily need to be able to go out on the boat, which is really great uh, as a visitor to the town. The hotspots that we know of seem to be generally like there could be a reef there, for example. So it's likely to be a good foraging spot or it could be something to do with it being a slightly sheltered or more quiet area for the dolphins. Um I would be lying if I said there weren't hours and hours sometimes spent without any encounters. Um, 
but it's kind of part of the part of the experience and it's even more exciting than when you do encounter because <laughs> you feel like you really worked for it <laughs> oh my goodness totally and I feel like most um scientists that I've chatted with who do focus on marine mammals they're like yeah I spend a lot of time just driving around looking for them because there's so much space that they can get to that maybe we just won't see them that day exactly and it's very dependent on weather conditions and things you know so as soon as there's a bit of chop it's incredibly hard to to spot a dorsal fin and so yeah there can be a lot of time but that's the best part of having a team on board as well so those hours never feel wasted you know and particularly working with people who are local to the community as someone as someone who didn't grow up by the sea or with these animals all the time it's super inspiring and those kind of downtime moments when we're not with animals are great just to pick their brains and hear more about their kind of like local knowledge and how much they know about this population having lived and worked with them for for decades thanks so much for tuning in make sure you hit follow wherever you listen to your podcast and on social media you can also leave a rating on the podcast to help it reach more people i will see you next week